So Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him, and no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulphur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him, to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Thanks, Dan, and good morning, everyone. My name's Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the staff here. Um, those last couple of words in the reading are pretty heavy words to finish on and sort of leave hanging in the air as I kind of come up here and get settled. Um, I don't think too many of us uh, came to church this morning looking forward to hearing about flesh-eating birds and lakes of fire. Um, if you did come in looking forward to that, I, please know that's not normal. Um, <laughs> here we are, uh, Revelation 19 and 20, and uh, as Joe's already pointed out, we're convinced here that all of the Bible is God's Word, uh, which for us means it's good for us to read all of the Bible. We're convinced, first and foremost, that God is good, and so what he has to say is always good for us to engage with, uh, even if it's hard to hear sometimes. Um, so our usual practice here is to work through books of the Bible and, uh, yeah, through all different parts of the Bible. Uh, we've been working through Revelation now for some time, and whatever else we might think or feel about what was just read for us, we might be confused or uncomfortable, we may even be outraged. Uh, the value for us this morning in reading Revelation, I think, is that it reminds us what's at stake when it comes to Jesus. Uh, for all of us, uh, whether we're followers of Jesus, uh, whether we're just curious about Jesus, or whether you've been sort of dragged along here by someone else this morning, very special welcome if that's you in particular. Uh, for all of us, it's, I think, hard to be apathetic uh, when we come to a reading like this. Because we're confronted here with the ultimate battle between good and evil. It's hard for us to be apathetic when we're thinking about issues like heaven and hell. Now, as Australians, I think we're very good at ignoring those kind of topics. Uh, when it yeah, sort of gets thrown around, I think most Australians would rather duck their head and sort of not think about these things. But when we're forced to stop, uh, or perhaps if we force ourselves to stop and to think carefully about the gravity of eternity, well, surely we all realise just how important it is to think about these things very carefully. Uh, there would be nothing worse, I take it, nothing worse than uh, making assumptions that we later on find out are misplaced. Assumptions about eternity, about Jesus, about revelation. I gather that most Aussies uh, have the assumption that God is a good bloke. He's a pretty good guy uh, and, uh, you know, if I die, I'm sure he'll be fine with me. Uh, I think we hear those kind of assumptions at funerals quite often, the kind of comments like, oh, they're in a better place now, they're in the great uh, golf course in the sky, shooting hole-in-one. And I reckon if Australians believe that, uh, it's pretty fair to conclude, well, what's the point of Jesus? Like, what's the big deal with Jesus? If God's a good bloke, he's going to forgive me anyway, why need Jesus? Well, look at Christians and think, well, he doesn't seem to make their life much better than mine. In fact, probably a fair bit worse. If I want to join a social club, I'm certainly not going to join a church. There'd be far more fun things to do with a Sunday morning. So however, however we do feel about this uh, and what we've just read, 
I think the great value for us and why it's good for us to read Revelation this morning is it shakes us out of any apathy we might have. It reminds us what's truly at stake and it keeps pointing us to the promises that Jesus makes about eternity. So as a church, as, as Christians, if all we have to offer the rest of Australia is, well, come follow Jesus, your life will be better. Like Jesus is some kind of life coach who gives us, you know, 10 tips on how to live a prosperous life. If that's all we have to offer Australia, well, we shouldn't be surprised if they're apathetic about Jesus. If we talk about Jesus like he's a, you know, a softly spoken boyfriend who makes us really affirmed and he's always with us holding our hands, if that's the Jesus we're talking about, again, uh, we shouldn't be surprised if Australians remain apathetic about him. The claims we're looking at today, though, I don't think anyone can honestly be apathetic about. Like, sure, you might want to reject these claims about Jesus, but uh, at the very least you realise that writing him off too quickly, too flippantly, is very risky. For one, I think what Revelation does is challenges the common assumption that Jesus is only a meek and mild guy who would never hurt a fly. At the start of our reading today, in Revelation 19, uh, verse 11, if you've got your Bibles open, it'll be helpful for the next little while. Uh, The image we get of Jesus from verse 11, chapter 19, it's vivid and it's very powerful. Uh, Jesus here, he's traded in, his lowly donkey, he's upgraded to a a white war horse. Uh, in, In Revelation, white seems to be about conquest and victory. Jesus has traded in his crown of thorns and now he's upgraded, he's got many crowns on his head. He's upgraded his disciples even, you know, that that ragtag bunch of fishermen who followed him around. Now he's followed by the armies of heaven, verse 14. They're dressed in fine white clothes. They're victorious. They're winners. I'm not sure, by the way, if that's an army of angels. I'm not sure if this kind of represents the church. Uh, Either way, it's a picture here of Jesus as an unstoppable conqueror. Verse 11. He's a judge. He's riding out to bring justice. He's a king riding out to battle. Verse 12, his eyes, they're they're like a blazing fire. I think the idea here is that he sees everything perfectly. Eyes are fire, it means he can see everything. I gather that's a good thing if he's a judge, like you want the judge to have all the facts, right? But it's also perhaps a bit uh, disconcerting if you think, well, Jesus can see everything in my life. He knows everything and he's the judge. Then verse 15, Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword uh, which, with which to strike the nations. Now, clearly, symbolic, right? Jesus doesn't have a sword in his actual mouth. This is an image, it's a symbol. I think the idea here is that his words are incredibly powerful. And with his words, Jesus brings judgment. It's how Jesus rules, actually, this universe, simply with his words. He doesn't need to lift a physical finger, that's how powerful his word is. Now realise, this, uh, this image of Jesus will be unsettling for some, uh, especially if we're used to thinking of Jesus as the, the meek and mild type. Uh, in fact, even in Revelation, uh, we've seen time and time again, the main way Revelation talks about Jesus is as the Lamb. And so we get to this part of Revelation where we're reminded, I think, that Jesus is not one-dimensional. Like, it's as a Lamb that He has incredible power. He's no Lamb that we can tame, or lead around behind us. This lamb, this Jesus, he's the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords. Now that's the central claim, not just of Revelation, that's the central claim of the entire Bible. That Jesus rules the universe. Jesus rules every single life, uh, even those who ignore him. Now it's true, of course, he is meek and mild, 
As we read through the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we see He's unbelievably kind, He's gentle, He's tender with the broken. Uh, But I think they're images that that tell us He's the best kind of King. I think what that means is that He's the King who won't let evil stand forever. Like, because no good King does, I think that's why Jesus is riding out to battle here. This is a vision uh, John's, John's received, it's a vision looking forward to the end of human history when Jesus rides out uh, in one final battle against evil. Because no good king lets rebellion go on forever. He's coming to bring justice. See the, the really sober description of his justice in verse 15? At the end of verse 15, we're told Jesus, it's, it's him who's treading the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It's pretty vivid. It's actually picking up images from Isaiah 63, uh, if you're taking notes. Isaiah 63, we're told there that God is the one who treads the winepress. He's the one who crushes His enemies. Here in Revelation, we see it's Jesus doing that work. What we keep seeing in Revelation, and uh, it's been in a pretty heavy section for a while now, with a repeated kind of idea that God's justice will be severe. At a few points during uh, this series in Revelation, we've stopped uh, to think in a bit more depth um, about this, because I think it is tempting for us uh, to sit in judgment of God's judgment. As if to say, well, it's not fair that God would do this. Like, how can a good God bring this kind of widespread destruction? If I was God, I'd be far more lenient. Now, we're not going to cover uh, that same ground at length today. Um, I'd suggest if you're interested in finding more or thinking more about why we can trust that God's judgment is good... Uh, why his justice is fair. Uh, I recommend getting online. Our sermons are up uh, so you can have a listen. Uh, the last few sermons in particular will help you think through that. But today, I do want to say uh, on that topic, uh, a short summary. The reason that we naturally don't like God's judgment, the reason we don't like God's judgment is the same reason, actually, that he brings it. The, same, the reason we naturally don't like God's judgment is the same reason he brings it. That is, we at heart really don't want there to be a God who rules over us, who calls us to account. The story of every human life, I think, is one that would uh, we'd rather be king or queen ourselves. We'd rather be the judge of ourselves. The problem, of course, is that there is a king, there is a judge, our loving creator. And if we reject him as king and put ourselves in uh, his place, well, there is no worse injustice in the universe. What's critical as we, as we think about judgment, as we think about justice, is to be reminded that God's justice is not one-dimensional. He is just, uh, perfectly just, but we see time and time again throughout Scripture that His preference, God's preference, is always mercy, not judgment. Uh, God doesn't delight, He doesn't take pleasure at all in the judgment that He brings. Do you notice in verse 13, uh, we're told about what Jesus is wearing as He rides out? It's quite striking. He wears a robe dipped in blood. Now, I take it this could be uh, perhaps the blood of His enemies, sort of adding to that treading on the wine press idea, that's possible. Uh, even if it is, I think any time you see a mention of Jesus and blood, uh, we should think first of His own blood. Because Jesus, before He is a judge, is a saviour. What we've seen in Revelation, the heartbeat of Revelation is uh, actually the same as the heartbeat of the Bible. It's salvation, not judgment. It's Jesus by His blood poured out on the cross. Uh, It's there that He offers salvation to every single person. But salvation from what? Well, 
from God's wrath. God's wrath being poured out on those who turn our backs on Him. That's what Jesus' blood saves us from. So as we read about this conquering Jesus, the Almighty King of Kings, Lord and Lords, it's the same Jesus, the Lamb who was slain. He died in place of sinners so that we might have life. So we don't have to fear the day that He returns to judge. It's very good news. Jesus invites everyone, actually, everyone to turn to Him as Lord of Lords, as King of Kings. And when we do that, we do have nothing to fear from a Jesus who can see everything, who knows all. Because on the cross, it's all been dealt with. When we turn to Jesus, we don't have to fear the word of His mouth, as powerful as it is, as we see in Revelation 19, we don't have to fear that as His people, because it's first a word of salvation. It's only in rejecting Jesus' words that it becomes a word of judgment. Uh, Revelation shows us, uh, well and true, that Jesus did not come to give us good life advice. He didn't come to sort of found a nice social club called church. Jesus came to offer salvation. And he came to warn of what is at stake if we reject that. His resurrection from the dead, uh, the empty tomb, I think is the evidence we need to consider carefully as we read Revelation. Uh, because it, I think the empty tomb shows us we can't afford to be apathetic about Jesus. If Jesus rose from the dead, this is who He is. He's the one who conquered death. He's the one who will conquer evil. I take it this means there is no room for apathy. Either Jesus is coming back as the all-conquering King, or Jesus stayed dead, and so will we. But it would be good to be very sure about that, wouldn't it? If you'd like to find out more, uh, to sort of help you think through Jesus and the claims that uh, we're sort of addressing today, uh, we'd love to help you with that. We'd love to sort of try and answer any questions you might have. We'd love to try and give an account of why we think the resurrection is a reasonable thing to believe in. Because if Jesus rose from the dead, we can be confident that He is returning to overthrow all evil. Every opposition to Him will be dealt with. And the repeated claim of the Bible and of Revelation is... On that day, a day that will come suddenly, we really don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Uh, Here in verse 17, uh, an angel calls to the birds, get ready. Uh, This battle, this last battle, will have a lot of casualties. There's a feast coming for the birds who scavenge. It's a pretty harrowing image, isn't it? Verse 18, everyone. There's kings, there's generals, all people, slaves, free, their horses, great and small. The birds are summoned here, do you notice, even before the battle happens... Because it's a foregone conclusion. And sure enough, it's not even a proper fight. There's a bit of an anticlimax at one level. It's not a great movie finish, because Jesus is just the rider. He defeats them with the sword of his mouth, his word. Now, this kind of anticlimactic, all the nations gather and are wiped out suddenly, it's something we've already seen in Revelation, back in chapter 16, for those who have been around for a few weeks. Uh, There we saw the nations of the earth, they are deceived by uh, the beast and the false prophet who, uh, in Revelation, are basically the agents of Satan who do uh, this work of deceiving and leading people astray. Uh, Back in chapter 16, we saw the nations gather at a place called Armageddon, ready to battle, Uh, but then it was just a complete non-event. God just said, time's up, you're done, and they were. It's exactly the same thing we see here in chapter 19. It's not really a battle, is it? Jesus wins without even lifting a finger. I think the reason uh, that we have two very similar accounts of a battle is because they're probably the same battle. 
Uh, what we've seen uh, quite a lot in Revelation is uh, that it's not one long story about history with events happening one thing after another. Uh, Revelation, rather, I think, is a, uh, is a series of scenes, kind of like a vision that goes round and round in circles, uh, looking at the same events, just from a different angle, a different focus each time. So, uh, for those of you who like sport, this will probably be helpful. Even if you don't like sport, I reckon this will still make sense. It's kind of like watching replays when you're watching live sport. So imagine uh, you're watching the cricket, Steve Smith hits the English bowlers for another four. Uh, you see that in real time, uh, then they show replays, don't they? They slow down, they show the shot again, and it's all its glory. There's a sort of a close-up of Stephen's face as he watches the ball race around to the boundary. There's another replay of the fielders helplessly chasing it down, and my favourite one of all, the, the replay of the English captain as he puts his head in the hands yet again. Uh, just, yeah. uh, big welcome to all of our English friends here today, by the way. Uh, great to have you with us. Uh, the point is, of course, that the replays don't all happen uh, one thing after another. They're replays of the same event, just focusing on something different each time. I think Revelation does the same thing. Uh, we had the last battle back in chapter 16, and we see it replayed here again in chapter 19, here uh, with a particular focus on how the battle is won. Here we see the battle is won simply by the word of Jesus. That's how powerful his word is. We learn here as well that the beast, the false prophet, uh, those who do the work of, uh, work of Satan, what we're told here is that at some point uh, in the future, in our future, they get done away with forever. Well, that's good news, isn't it? The forces of Satan, get done, they get dealt with. Now, I think this is a vivid and symbolic account of uh, the time at some point in our future where Jesus returns to earth, when he conquers all his enemies and all evil is held to account. But then, that's chapter 19, then you get to chapter 20 and you think, well, hang on, like, did Jesus beat all his enemies or not? Because suddenly in chapter 20, there's a dragon, Satan's still around, he's deceiving the nations, and you think, well, which nations? Who's still left? It's pretty clear in chapter 19, I thought they got wiped out, and then you see later in chapter 20, in verse 7, there's another battle. Again, you think, well, who's left doing fighting at this point? The big question, as we read Revelation 20, is, uh, is this. Is chapter 20, is it a replay of the same battle in chapter 19, just looking at things from a different angle? Or does chapter 20 of Revelation tell us the next thing that happens in history after Jesus returns? That is, is it a replay, or does chapter 20 tell us that after Jesus returns, there will be a thousand years, uh, uh, yeah, before final judgment? Now, it's fair to say that Christians have uh, disagreed on this a little bit. Well, actually, Christians have disagreed on this quite a lot for a very long time. Uh, so I'm probably not going to sort it all out for everyone today. Um, but I want to say it's one of those things that's actually okay to disagree on. Uh, some of you will have thought about this quite a lot and uh, have a pretty clear stance on this. Um, I reckon it's sort of part of the Bible that we can all say is pretty tricky and we'll give each other a lot of grace if we have different positions on this. Uh, I think it's something we can all agree is, is a friendly disagreement, because after all, what we're trying to do as we disagree on these things is just read the Bible well, understand exactly what's being said and what it means. That's a good thing to discuss as Christians, trying to understand God's Word well. I think it's kind of like a family that's split on whether crows or the port, uh, the crows or port uh, are the better side. Uh, everyone is still part of the family as you have that disagreement. There's some cheap shots occasionally and a bit of ribbing, uh, but you still get on, you're still family. 
Some of us might have never thought about this in Revelation 20, a thousand years, and you're not that interested. Uh, it's kind of like you feel like you're visiting family, you don't like footy at all when they just don't show up about the footy, that kind of thing uh, might be going on. Uh, so this morning, especially with you in mind, uh, we'll only spend a few minutes looking at uh, how to understand Revelation 20 and a thousand years, um, but we should spend some time, uh, not no time, because it is important for us to wrestle with God's Word, understand what's being said. We're only going to spend a little bit of time because I don't want us to get distracted by, uh, by the details because the big picture, I think, is still very clear. Uh, so, uh, there are three main ways that people think about the thousand years of Revelation 20, uh, the, the, the thousand years that we're told Satan is bound for. Now, uh, first, I'll just some, uh, have some slides here to help us uh, see what's going on. Uh, first, some people think uh, that what's being said here is that Jesus returns, like in uh, chapter 19, that's his first coming, uh, that starts a thousand years. So, Jesus returns and then there's a thousand years... Uh, and in that thousand years, Satan is bound kind of literally for literally a thousand years usually. Uh, in that thousand years, Jesus rules on earth uh, and uh, in, under his rule there's a great time of peace and prosperity. Uh, up until the final few years, there's another great battle because Satan's released, chaos, there's another war and then comes final judgment. So uh, that Jesus comes in this account pre-millennium, pre-1,000 years. Uh, there's a thousand years and then final judgment. There's a gap of a thousand years. That's called premillennialism. Um, now, there's a fair bit of variety in that. Now, others, and this is the next one, uh, others say, well, no, uh, Satan being bound for a thousand years doesn't start when Jesus returns. Uh, what seems to happen for them is that uh, a thousand years before Jesus returns, Satan's bound sort of behind the scenes. We won't know about it. It just sort of happens uh, in the heavenly realms. Uh, when Satan is bound, of course, uh, evil and deception sort of comes to a grinding hole, and church has a glorious golden age of a thousand years, where uh, the gospel goes out to the nations, people sit uh, under God's words, all sorts of uh, wonderful things happen. Um, and then, uh, finally, same thing, Satan gets released, chaos, war, then Jesus returns, and ju judgment happens all at once. That's called post-millennialism, where Jesus returns post the millennium. Uh, that's not a particular popular view anymore. You might hold it, which is, yeah. Yep. Um, now, there's another way of reading this, and uh, this is the way that I lean on this, is how I read Revelation 20, uh, is firstly by saying that the thousand years is not literally 1,000 years, uh, but rather saying, like uh, the rest of the number, nearly all the numbers we see in Revelation, a thousand years is more symbolic. It's not literally 1,000 years. It's kind of a, a, a figurative way of saying a, a full amount of time, a large amount of time. Uh, and for this account, a thousand years actually starts when Jesus first came to earth, in his earthly ministry, especially uh, on the cross. Uh, in Jesus' ministry, he said he, he binds Satan, the strong man. Uh, on the cross, it's very clear that Jesus defeats Satan. That's uh, something the New Testament is very clear about. It's also clear he's not destroyed at that point. Uh, so what that means uh, is that a thousand years starts with Jesus. Jesus rules now, in our period of history. Jesus is ruling uh, and uh, in a sense, Satan is bound now. We live in a symbolic 1,000 years, after which Jesus returns to judge, uh, and uh, his, yeah, his second return and judgment happens all at once. Now, that's called amillennialism. Uh, that is, the millennium is not literal. But don't worry, there's no test on this. You don't have to sort of remember all the millenniums and where they all fit. That's okay. Um, I just want to say this morning, there's a few reasons I think the last one is probably the best option as we read Revelation 20, amillennialism. Uh, mostly because, uh, as far as I can tell, there's nowhere else in Scripture where there's any sense that there will be a gap uh, between Jesus' second coming and judgment. Uh, as far as I can tell, every time the second coming is spoken of, it's with judgment. Uh, a thousand years uh, is, in Revelation 20, the only place 
we hear of a gap uh, or a potential gap if you think uh, that's what a thousand years is about. And what I want to say then is, uh, as we read the Bible, we should let the clearer parts of Scripture help us understand the less clear parts. If this is the only part of the Bible that talks about a thousand years, I think we should let other parts of Scripture help us understand uh, that. So that's uh, probably the first thing I'd say. Uh, I think as well that uh, chapter 20 is not the next part of history, but I think it is a replay of chapter 19. Um, you see in verse 1 of chapter 20, John's describing what he sees next, and I saw. Uh, that doesn't automatically mean the next thing that happens in history. Like, it could be, uh, but I think we've seen enough times in Revelation, John used that exact same language to describe a vision that clearly happens in the past. I think this is another replay. And again, I say that because, as I've already said, the nations get wiped out in chapter 19. It's very difficult for me to understand uh, who's then fighting against Jesus later on in chapter 20. I, I don't see... Uh, how that could be, but uh, some do. I would also add, though, that both wars in chapters 19 and 20, uh, both wars are described using the, the language from the same part of Ezekiel. Uh, so you remember the birds gathering in chapter 19, that sort of language gathered to, uh, to eat flesh. Uh, that's from Ezekiel 38, 39, and Mog and, um, oh, sorry, Gog and Magog, uh, that's from Ezekiel uh, 38, 39 as well. My point is, uh, both battles have language from the same part of Ezekiel used to describe them, again, making me think it's probably the same battle. The big question many have is, what's happening then with the binding of Satan? After all, if what I'm saying is that we live today uh, in a period where Satan is bound, where Jesus is ruling, well, the question, of course, is, well, why is there so much evil in the world? And why, like, what do, how do you make sense of that where the New Testament is very clear that Satan is dangerous? Uh, Satan is at work. I need to be on our guard. New Testament is very clear about that. How can that be if he is bound? Well, I think it's important to keep remembering uh, the way that symbolic language works. Um, I don't think Jesus has a sword coming out of his mouth. In the same way, I'm not sure a chain would do much, a physical chain would actually stop Satan doing anything. Uh, John's, represent, John's telling us what he sees. It's a vision. It's something symbolic telling us something true. I think what we're being told is that Satan is helpless, completely helpless, to do one thing in particular. We're even told what that particular thing is. If you look in uh, verse 3, Satan is bound to stop him from, one thing, deceiving the nations. There's nothing about what else he might do. In Mark chapter 3, uh, Jesus tells us uh, that he binds the strong man. In Colossians, Paul says that Jesus triumphs over evil on the cross. It doesn't say he destroyed Satan. It tells us, I think, that Satan is put in his place. His activity is restricted. And the story of the New Testament goes that because of the cross, after the cross, Satan is unable to deceive the nations because now the good news about salvation goes out from Israel into all the world. The good news that Jesus is the Saviour, He is the Lord. Satan cannot stop that happening. Now, uh, there's far more we could say about this. I've skipped over plenty of nuance in the, in the disagreements, um, but probably a good time to just pause, take a breath, and wake up again. If you sort of switched off for the last five minutes, now's the time to sort of uh, regain consciousness. Um, because it's now time to work out, well, what's the point? Like, we disagree about these things, sure, but what's the point? How does this make a difference in my life? It seems to me the point is that for now, for now there is time. It might be a long time, it might be a little time, but for now, there is still time. There is time to spread the good news of salvation to the nations. Satan cannot stop that message getting out. 
He cannot stop it getting from those who need to hear it. But we also see at some point it will be too late. I think what we're being told here in a pretty revelation-y kind of way, I think we're being told why Jesus went away at all. Have you ever thought about this? Like, why didn't Jesus, when he first came to earth, why didn't he destroy Satan? Then he could have, surely. Why didn't he wipe out all opposition to God at that point? 2,000 years ago, it would have saved 2,000 years of pain and suffering. I think the binding of Satan here tells us that God is giving us time. He's giving the nations time. Why? Well, in a passage that's very heavy on judgment, we need to keep remembering, God loves this world. The last thing God wants to do, literally, the last thing He will do is bring judgment. He's waiting as long as He possibly can because He wants everyone to come to repentance. Before judgment, there is time. Satan is bound, he can't deceive people, but Satan is still alive and dangerous and doing great harm. Yet it seems that God would rather allow harm in this world, He would rather that than to bring judgment before before time is up, before everyone has a chance to hear the gospel and respond. See, God has promised a, a perfect, uh, evil-free world. It's wonderful. We'll see more of that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you've been sticking out in Revelation for a long time. We're getting to uh, some of the most glorious chapters in the Bible. So come back next week. But before that, we're confronted here with the reality that God, before the new heavens and new earth, God must eradicate evil. That means one final judgment and getting rid of all sin forever. As confronting as this passage is, um, especially these final few verses about you know, appearing before the great white throne of an eternal and holy God to face judgment, it shows us, doesn't it, that uh, the time is coming where every injustice will be made right. That's a good thing. It's telling us that every person who thought they got away with evil will find out that they didn't. That's a good thing. But the best thing is that we're being told that everyone, every single creature, will see the glorious, majestic Jesus for who He is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. For those who trust Jesus, uh, we don't need to fear this day. Uh, We don't need to fear being judged according to what we have done in verse 13, uh, because that's only a problem if we haven't given our lives in service to the King. When we offer our lives to Jesus, uh, everything we then go on to do is in reference to Him. We have nothing to fear about being judged according to what we have done if we turn to Him. If you're not ready for this day that we've uh, heard about this morning, if you're not ready for this day, there is still time. We don't know how much, but there is time for now. Again, we'd love to help you think through these things and uh, explore kind of some of the questions you might have. We don't need to live in fear of this day, but, as Jesus keeps telling us, we do need to stay ready. Um, I found it, uh, as I have every week in Revelation, I found this week very helpful for me personally, and this chapter of, uh, well, I hope it's been as helpful for you as it has for me, being reminded that we cannot afford to be apathetic about God's judgment. We can't forget that Jesus is coming back, and we can't live as if He's not. He is the King of Kings, He is the Lord of Lords, And for now, we have time to tell people about Him. His Word, as we've seen, is incredibly powerful in judgment, but don't forget, it's even more powerful in salvation. 
Uh, earlier this week, uh, uh, very excited, Matt sent out a weekly email, uh, and uh, most of you will have got it in your inboxes. Hopefully, all of you have read it, because you would have seen uh, Matt telling us about some wonderful events we have coming up uh, that will help us, as a church, tell everyone that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who knows? Uh, these mission events may be the last ones we get to run as a church before Jesus returns. So, uh, my encouragement this morning is, let's make the most of them. Uh, perhaps you might need to dig out that email and have a second careful read. Uh, you might like to put those dates in the diary, but most importantly, you might like to start praying. Praying for our friends and family. Uh, praying for each other's friends and family. Praying for our community. Praying that there may be many names found in that book of life. Because there is still time. Please join me as we pray now. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you're patient that you don't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, Lord Jesus, we ask you to help us to live now, uh, to stay ready for your return. Help us not get apathetic or be spiritually lethargic. Uh, We really need your help, Jesus, to keep looking forward to that day. So, uh, please help us look forward to a day when there will be no more evil. In the meantime, we ask you to help us to do the work of declaring salvation to everyone. Uh, Please bless us as we seek to do this, um, to trust in your powerful word, that you'll do a great work, bring many to know you as Saviour and Lord, while there is still time. Amen.